You're listening to The Honest Report. A weekly podcast analyzing media coverage of the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, and radical Islamic terrorism. Here's your host, Rob Walker. I'm Robert Walker, and welcome to The Honest Report podcast. Today, our guest is Professor Gerald Steinberg. He is the president and founder of NGO Monitor. He's also a professor emeritus at Bar-Ilan University, where he founded the program on conflict management and negotiations. Uh, professor, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So certainly, I mean, you have a long and very impressive uh, CV and a lot of different things we can talk about, but uh, certainly your work uh, founding and managing NGO Monitor, I think, is uh, is the most uh relevant, perhaps, uh, as far as anti-Israel groups are concerned. Tell us, what what really spurred on the founding of NGO Monitor? It's a long story. I'll try to make it short. I think it's interesting. Other people might not find it so. But I have taught and worked in the area of international politics, uh, war and peace, negotiations, diplomacy, for, I guess, 40 years. I was uh, I came to Israel after I finished my doctoral degree and, and a postdoctoral fellowship I, in the, I came to Israel in 1982 and began teaching. A lot of it had to do with uh, arms control and uh, deterrence issues, which are current today in the sense of Russia and Ukraine. But uh, after about 20 years of doing that, I began, as I was going to conferences, I began to see more and more of these NGOs, non-governmental organizations, uh, not just hanging around, but being active participants and actually very influential this is around the year, the late 90s and around 2000 in particular. 2000 was when the uh, Oslo framework fell apart. Some people refer to the violent, what I call Arafat's war. Some people call it the, uh, the second intifada, which I think is a misnomer. But there was mm. a lot of, uh, there were the tax buses were being blown up, Israelis were being killed. And I would go to conferences and events, particularly uh, arms control related ones in Geneva, at the uh, UN uh, com- compound there. Uh, one on landmines. It's a long story. And then, uh, but I kept seeing the NGOs. And then there was this uh, event that was called the Durban UN Conference on the, uh, Ending Racism Against Racism uh, that mm-hmm. took place in Durban in uh, South Africa at the end of September, or at the beginning, sorry, at the beginning of September. At the, uh, when that was being organized, I happened to be in Ottawa in Canada. Uh, I was meeting with members of the uh, Canadian government at the time that dealt with these uh, arcane issues of arms control and nuclear proliferation. And uh, they were telling me that they were also involved in something called human security. Canada was a major funder of this. And I said, this is going to make me nervous because I had already found out that Israel was going to be a target. And these powerful NGOs, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, were among them, but there were going to be 1,500 organizations, the Canadian official was very proud in telling me, and Canada was going to help pay for their travel and, and make sure this was a successful event commemorating mm. the end of apartheid in South Africa. So that turned out to be an absolute disaster, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, the NGO forum there was the initiated the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanction, the BDS movement and uh, the lawfare and the demonization of Israel. They referred to Israel in the final declaration as an apartheid state a number of times, not naming any- Well, Durban has almost become a shorthand for the, uh, you know, the anti-Semitic hate fest that, uh, you know, that it was. 
It is the shorthand. That's exactly what it was. And at that time, uh, having started to pay attention to this and realizing that in the academic world, nobody was writing about the role of, of the power, the influence of these uh, non-governmental organizations. We call it the halo effect. Everybody's saying how wonderful they were. And after the, the conference was over, the officials that I had spoken to in Canada, also at the Ford Foundation said, well, this is an aberration. This is not really what the, these, these organizations aren't really as bad as you say they are. Well, I decided that, that was something that I had to deal with. And that was the beginning of NGO Monitor. It was a one man show. I was gonna do this for a couple of years, write a few articles, maybe a book, get some graduate students. Here we are 20 years later, NGO Monitor, the deeper, the deeper that I dug in terms of, and then adding to that our colleagues at NGO Monitor, uh, dug in terms of the world of NGOs and the damage and destruction that they do, not just to Israel, but in other areas as well. And the amount of money they control, it really turned out to be very important and all consuming activity, not just in research, but as you pointed out, in terms of also um, Israel advocacy, because they were just doing so much damage. I mean, this is pretty scandalous. I mean, you're talking about sort of a G7 country, and certainly Canada's not the only one, uh, but you're talking about sort of major industrialized powers who are throwing a significant amount of money uh, at NGOs who are really fomenting a lot of uh, you know, let's say problems, to put it uh, diplomatically, uh, in the Middle East, how can these governments, uh, how did they accomplish this? And how did they get to the point? Was it naivete? Was it willful, willful ignorance? I mean, it doesn't make sense. I think it's, well, it started off more in Europe. Uh, Canada, under the Liberals, tended to follow the European lead, uh, both back in the, the late 90s and, and the, the early 2000s, and now again. But Europe is, is very much more closely wedded to the idea that these, what are called sometimes non-governmental or civil society organizations are a force for unmitigated good in the world. Uh, so some of that is naivete, uh, a very misplaced idealism, lack of information. But I think there's also, there are people who are very aware of what, of what these are. It's much easier for these countries, and I'm talking about mainstream countries in, in Europe, Germany, Sweden, Norway, and down to Italy and Spain, Belgium, I won't go through the whole list, but every Western European country across the board gives billions of euros to NGOs, justifying this as a form of uh, foreign policy, but it's also a means of having, manipulating impact without having to take responsibility. So let me give you an example. All those countries, but Germany in particular, give millions of euros a year to Palestinian NGOs, Israeli NGOs, and also global NGOs or, or regional NGOs that are very central to the demonization of Israel. Without that money, BDS would not have gone off the ground. There's a myth that there's that the BDS movement started with Omar Barghouti and some call Palestinian call for boycotts of Israel. It actually started at Durban by these Western NGOs, mm. among others. So the European governments are paying for this. Now, Europe would be, Germany particularly, the diplomats there would be uncomfortable saying that we call for the uh, arrest or the indictment, the investigation of Israelis for war crimes committed in Gaza. It's, it's, Israelis are committing war crimes because they're trying to defend their citizens. 
uh, it would be like saying that the Ukrainians are committing war crimes because they're trying to defend their own citizens. But that is obviously the meme that we, we see everywhere. All these boycott resolutions on university campuses. If you look to see who the speakers are, who's providing the material, it comes back to these NGOs. And those NGOs are, first of all, funded by European governments in large amounts. We estimate that today, these together, these NGOs, just from European government funding, get about 100 million euros a year. Uh, it was a little bit, it was about 120 a couple of years ago. We've managed to name and shame some of the uh, funders to decrease it. So there's that element of being able to promote an anti-Israel policy. And there is a view in Europe, the dominant view that Israel is too strong, needs to be weakened. Way to do that is to use the NGOs. That's a more cynical approach, but I think it's no less important than the naivete. Uh, among Canadians, there, there's a, a piggyback approach. Uh, I've heard this from a number of Canadian diplomats. They do what their European colleagues do. And now we're seeing the Biden administration also getting into this, not surprisingly. So how much damage are these NGOs doing to Israel? In terms of what's called the soft power warfare, all the things that we just talked about, boycotts and other things, I think the damage is significant, not only to Israel, but also to students, not just Jewish students, but mainly predominantly Jewish students on campuses who are made to feel um, not just embarrassed, but that they're really being intimidated by all of these campaigns labeling Israel as uh, apartheid state is the current meme or uh, guilty of boycott of, of war crimes and other things. Uh, that the damage I think is, is more psychological. The truth is the BDS movement has done almost none or perhaps no economic damage whatsoever to Israel. All those uh, campaigns to boycott various uh, uh, companies and products. But where the damage does take place is when you have students who are harassed or Israelis who are to travel abroad uh, doctors who go to hospitals to provide services to, to spend a year working in various uh, clinics and, and institutions and providing those their services and are being harassed and, and being in some cases threatened because they are Israelis. That's what that's what the real impact of the boycott movement and the lawfare process does. And, and that's pretty sinister. I, I think I use the term soft power warfare. Uh, it, it's applied to the uh, damage to reputation. I'll go back to Durban because that's where it all started. The Durban final NGO declaration called for the complete international isolation of Israel as an apartheid state. Now that hasn't happened to Israel, but it's happened to Israelis and Israeli supporters. And that's where the damage is. So what hope for, uh, for reform is there then? Well, after 20 years, we're beginning to see some serious discussion, not enough. Uh, the, the funding uh, in some European countries has decreased. Uh, one of the things that NGO Monitor discovered, and I, I want to point this out because up until the beginning of our research, there was nobody who did, did research. They, the money was granted blindly, automatically. Nobody cared or looked at what these Palestinian organizations really do, and more importantly, who the people are that are involved. And it turns out that the research, our research first unveiled this, we saw a pattern we began to connect the dots, that the main Palestinian organizations, the ones that get about half of that 100 million euros a year from Europe, they're closely linked to, they're operated by the terrorist fronts, Al-Haq, Adamir, Defense for Children, International, Palestine, mm -hmm. 
all of those organizations, and then the, the Defense for Children is quite visible in, in Canada. Uh, so is an organization called the Semi Dune, which has a Canadian link. Mm-hmm. So these organizations are essentially fronts for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a murderous terrorist organization. And, and so, which is, I should I should mention, is a banned terrorist group in Canada, the PFLP. That's right. The, or, the, the PFLP is banned. But in many, many cases, I'd say throughout the NGO uh, world in terms of funding and support and in the United Nations where these organizations have a great deal of influence and when they come and they speak in, in, to parliaments like as takes place in Canada and elsewhere, that the fact that these are linked to terrorist organizations is extremely important and it has made a difference. It has decreased to some degree the funding. I can see them very much now complaining on social media and blaming NGO Monitor. And we're happy to take the credit for that because we're doing our work. They're saying their funding's being cut. They're having to lay off people. One organization just had to lay off, they said 40 of their key staff members. Well, that's 40 less people who are going to be doing BDS and going to be doing Israel as war crimes and Israel as an apartheid state. So it does have some impact to be able to, what we call name and shame, to provide the information, to do the research. It needs to be done more. Canadian officials, and I, I know that I'm, uh, since I'm speaking to you, you, we've talked about this before, and we have good cooperation uh, also with the uh, CJA and with B'nai B'rith and other Canadian organizations, uh, Simon Wiesenthal Center, that the, uh, it's important that Canadian officials realize that when they give money to some of these NGOs, in some cases directly, in other cases, they do it through the UN, uh, give uh, 20, 30 million Canadian dollars to the UN to assist Palestinians, and then the UN gives it to the, or sometimes it goes through Oxfam, gives it to these terror-linked NGOs, that they're responsible for where that money goes. And that's beginning to take uh, hold. And uh, I think that the, the as I said, the uh, counterattacks, the bitter complaints, the condemnations of the work that NGO Monitor does is, is just uh, evidence that in fact the, that we're doing our work and showing that the funders of these organizations and supporters need to take a look at a deeper look to do the due diligence. If you're going to put a hundred million dollars into of state funded money of government money of taxpayer money into anything else, and you don't know where that money goes, who's getting it, you'd be immediately not just criticized, but it would be hard to justify that for any government. Somehow NGOs have this, uh, as we said, this halo effect, the Teflon effect, that mm-hmm. up until now it didn't have to be done. But I, I'm optimistic, I guess I have to be, that the more this is done, the more the government funders, and then the philanthropists and the foundations that provide a significant amount of money, not nearly as much as governments do, but they add to this funding. A lot of that goes to Human Rights Watch. Uh, there are a lot of Canadian donors. Toronto is a major source of funding individuals for Human Rights Watch, when those individuals begin to realize that Human Rights Watch, which is a private organization, on its uh, at least advisory board, is the head of Al-Haq, who served Mm -hmm. time in Israeli jails for being a PFLP operative, and is reported to be the main person who organizes this network of PFLP civil society or, or NGOs. And that, that's the absurdity just speaks for itself, human rights organization. So if you're giving to Human Rights Watch in Toronto at their annual dinner any other way, you should also know that some of that adds to the ability of these uh, terrorist frameworks 
not just of Human Rights Watch, but also of their uh, subsidiaries and, and, and allies, uh, as the case of Al-Haq, to do the damage that they do. Absolutely. And this halo effect, of course, you talked about, um, you know, is certainly uh, prevalent in the media as well. You know, you had uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch when they report on, uh, you know, Israel allegedly being an apartheid state. It's sort of typically reported breathlessly as if it's sacrosanct and gospel, you know, that, of course, well, if these uh, upstanding uh, human rights organizations say this, I mean, it's a given that their uh, conclusions are accurate. The term highly respected is often used by journalists. And the absurdity of that is something that I just, I can't get over that really. Why are they highly respected? On what basis are they highly respected? Because they have a lot of money? Because Amnesty International has an annual budget of 314 million euros. I don't know how much of that comes from Canada. About almost 60 million comes from the US branch of Amnesty. The Amnesty branch in Canada provides a certain amount. And there should be a lot more condemnation of Amnesty Canada for being part of this, I'm tempted to say circus, but it's much more damaging than, than a circus. Circus is entertaining. They're not entertaining. They are fundamentally immoral. And hopefully there will be an understanding among the Canadian supporters of Amnesty International that this cannot continue. Well, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much again, Professor Steinberg. Good to talk to you. Again, that's Professor Gerald Steinberg, founder and president of NGO Monitor. And that's today's edition of the Honest Report podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our alerts, subscribe to our podcast, leave a review. And if you like what you heard, please consider a donation to support our continued efforts. You can do so at honestreporting.ca slash donate. And until next time, thank you so much for listening.